Hello and welcome to PathPod. This is our next episode of Beyond the Scope. Today our host, Dr. Sarah Jang of Duke Health, speaks with neuropathologist Dr. Hissel Lopez of Duke Health. We'll hear about Dr. Lopez's journey to neuropathology, research on brain tumors, and mentoring. Now here's your host, Dr. Sarah Jang. Hello and welcome to PathPod. Today we're doing our segment called Beyond the Scope where we speak to pathologists about their pursuits and interests outside of pathology. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Jang. You can follow me on Twitter at S-A-R-A underscore J-I-A-N-G. We're very lucky to have Dr. Giselle Lopez on the show. Dr. Lopez is Assistant Professor in Pathology and Neurosurgery at Duke Health. You can follow Dr. Lopez on Twitter at NeuroGiselle, N-E-U-R-O, G-I-S-E-L-L-E. Welcome, Dr. Lopez. Hi, thank you for having me. We're so excited to have you on the show. Thank you for making the time to speak with us. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. So let's just start off with, tell me about yourself and what you do. Yeah, so I am a neuropathologist. And what that means is that anytime a neurosurgeon takes out a specimen, a tumor, a lesion, I kind of put all the pieces together and figure out what is going on. Um, And uh, the other part of my life is I'm a scientist. And so I do research on brain tumors and try to understand them and look for new avenues for treating them. Fabulous. Let's go um, way back. How did this all start? What did you want to be when you grew up? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Maryland, in Southern Maryland, and I knew even when I was a little girl that I wanted to be a doctor. And so that was my path. And I went to the University of Maryland for undergrad. And while I was there, I started doing research, mostly to put it on my CV to make it stronger (laughs) for medical stuff. Hey, any way you get into it, right? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But what I discovered was that I really loved the research. I loved kind of designing my own questions and trying to figure out how to answer them. And that was when I decided that I wanted to pursue both. Um, And my mentors there were the ones who pointed out that, hey, you actually can pursue both. There's this thing called an (laughs) MD-PhD. So I got into Duke and pursued my MD-PhD and rotated through different labs, really having no idea what field I wanted to go into, only that I wanted to do research and I wanted to be a doctor. And I fell into a brain tumor lab because the PI leading the lab, who was just so energetic and so invested in his research, and that really got me excited about the research. While I was in the lab, I decided I wanted to kind of pursue brain tumors on the clinical side as well, but there's a lot of ways to do that. So I was kind of deciding between different paths And one of my projects involved looking at patient samples underneath the microscope. You can see where this is going. I had no idea how to do this. I knew that stains were more complex than just brown is positive and not brown is negative. Right? (laughs) Right? Yeah. So then I started going to the neuropathology consensus conferences to learn a little bit more about what these tumors look like, how they stain, how to interpret the studies I was doing. And that was really when I discovered pathology as a field. I hadn't really considered it before that. And going to those conferences, I really saw how they 
put all the pieces of the puzzle together, how they took all the information, the clinical history, the radiology, what we saw on the slide, the molecular, and were really the people that kind of got the whole picture to figure out what is going on um, and come up with the diagnosis. And that was really exciting to me. And pathology is also a field that is very amenable to doing research as part of a career. And so it became, I think, obvious at that point that this was going to be a really good match for me. And so I decided to pursue a residency and fellowship in neuropathology, continue working on my research, and now here I am. <laughs> That's awesome. And that's something kind of that you and I share. Full disclosure, we both went to Duke. We entered med school together. So we go way, way back. But the way I entered pathology and got interested in pathology is also around the scope at those neuropath consensus conferences, because I did my third year research at Duke. At Duke, the third year is a research year. And I spent some time with a neuropathologist while I was doing my clinical research at the Brain Tumor Center. And I thought, oh, this is, this is pretty cool, you know, putting the pieces together, making the diagnosis. It was very visual. Um, and then where our paths diverge is, of course, that I was lured away by the procedures of cytopathology from neuropath, which was <laughs> my, initial, my initial path. And you, you stuck with neuropath, probably best both for me and for you that those are the paths that we took. I have told people, if I weren't doing neuropathology, I probably would be doing cytopathology. It's a fantastic uh, yes, field. <laughs> it is a fantastic field. And I think neuropathology is a fantastic field as well. And one it thing is. that you speak about that I think is really important to emphasize is that for those of you who are MD-PhDs really pursuing the physician-scientist route, PATH is a great, great home, right? Because you are literally looking at the tissue. You're literally looking at the samples. You're really close to the pathophysiology that's going on. Um, but even for folks like me who, you know, I don't run a lab, I don't have a PhD, it's really a good feel for folks of us who want to do research. And there's so many opportunities for doing it. You can do more translational research, retrospective studies, work with clinical collaborators, work on novel educational methods. So there's so many different ways that pathology helps you integrate a career in research. And of course, there's plenty of room in pathology for folks who have no interest in doing research as well. It really gives you a lot of flexibility. Absolutely. It's so easy to collaborate as well in pathology because we have the insight, we look at the slides, we have the tissue. And so it really opens doors to asking the questions that you want to ask and finding collaborators to work with on them. So it's a really unique position as a researcher. And I think the clinical work informs our research so nicely. There's so many times when I see something under the microscope or an interesting case or an interesting finding, and that can generate some questions or hypotheses that you can investigate further. Absolutely. And without looking at those slides, you don't really think about which cells are close to each other. Are they talking to each other? And so, you know, just being able to actually see the cells can really drive new questions, which it certainly has for me. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about your lab and your research and what directions you're taking? So I have three different branches to my lab right now. One of them is looking at tumor microenvironment and glioblastoma, which is the most common malignant brain tumor in adults, and really trying to look at some of the cells, in particular the macrophages in the tumor microenvironment, what they're doing. We know that they're sending out signals that make the tumor grow faster. They're sending out signals that shut down the immune system, so the immune system has a hard time attacking the tumor. And we still haven't parsed out exactly how that's happening and if there's a way to change it. So 
I'm kind of looking into that and trying to see if we can understand more of what's going on in the microenvironment and the signaling that's happening there. One of my other pursuits is looking at oligodendroglioma, which is a, a different kind of brain tumor, and exploring some of the features that we see there. Again, looking at what we see on the slide, there are regions that are more mitotically active and regions that aren't. And looking at the tumor microenvironment, what makes some parts of the tumor divide faster than others? Um, and doing a deep dive into that. And then my last part is looking at metastatic brain tumors and trying to explore some new therapies to try to attack them. Mets to the brain are more common than primary brain tumors. So in terms of tumors in the brain, it's actually the most common one. It's a different tumor going to it. And it's really hard to treat them with the blood-brain barrier. They're just very challenging. And so I'm looking into a few novel treatments to see if they'll work in some models in my lab. Wow, that's a lot going on. And then you also have a clinical service to tell us more about what your clinical um, practice is. Yeah, so my clinical practice is divided into three different aspects. The first one is surgical neuropathology. And so that's kind of what I alluded to earlier, which is looking at resections of tumors, biopsies of lesions, and trying to come to a diagnosis. Is this a tumor? If so, what kind? Is it an infectious process? Is it an autoimmune process? And trying to provide the information to plan the next steps for treatment. Another part of my clinical service is autopsy brains. And so many patients come in and we look at their brains and they're very healthy. Other ones come in and maybe they were having some memory problems at the time of death. And we can answer the question, did they have pathologies that would suggest they had Alzheimer's, that they had Parkinson's, any one of these neurodegenerative diseases? If they had cancer, had it metastasized to the brain? Um, and so really kind of answering those questions that are really hard to answer through other methods right now. And then the last part is interpreting some of the molecular studies. So for example, fluorescence in situ hybridization, which is basically probes to look at DNA, and we should have two copies in each cell. And tumor cells may lose a copy, they may have too many copies, it kind of goes awry. But knowing those changes can help diagnose tumors, can help figure out what they might respond to treatment-wise. And so I look at those and interpret those studies as well. So it definitely keeps you busy, right? Oh, yeah. With the pandemic, how has that played a role in both your clinical and research practices? So on the clinical side, things stayed almost about the same. For surgical neuropathology, patients are coming in, and they're most often coming in with a brain tumor. And these really aren't tumors that we can hold off mm -hmm. treating. And sure. So when the hospitals were shutting down, what they were really trying to do was limit procedures that could be delayed by a few weeks and without a high risk of poor outcomes. So screening colonoscopies, for example, if they get done a month later, there's, you know, it's, it's okay. A brain tumor, we usually can't wait a week. And so the volumes didn't change all that much on the clinical side. On the research side, everything closed down, all the labs. Um, and so we pivoted to doing work that we could do on a computer. So working on 
a, a book review. And so a few of us sure. got together and, and wrote a book chapter and kind of laying the groundwork for some of the research that we would do once we were allowed to get back into the lab. And I've been really fortunate that with the layout in our lab and the space that I'm in, that we have a lot of flexibility so people can come in essentially when they want, because we're all so far apart within the room that it creates a safe working environment. But it's definitely been a challenge. Some of the cores are working at lower volume. And so it's just kind of trying to get creative and work around them and figure out what studies we can do now and which ones we need to hold off on. Right. Well, I'm so glad to hear that you've been able to kind of think about creative ways to stay productive as we all kind of have with the challenges of working remotely and still trying at the same time to advance science and get the work done and do things that are contributing to knowledge. So I'm glad to hear that things are still very productive in your neck of the woods. So let's shift gears a little bit. I know that one of your interests is mentoring particularly underrepresented minorities in the sciences and Mm -hmm. kind of helping folks go down the path of establishing a research career. Tell me a little bit more about your interest in that. I feel it's really important for everybody, regardless of your background, to have mentors. It is what makes our career. And this is true for somebody who is in high school, and it's true for somebody who is a new chair. Everybody needs mentors, people who have done this before. As a mentor, it's often easy to mentor somebody that we can see as ourselves. And so it's easy to mentor someone that comes from a similar background, For those who are underrepresented, it can be hard to find someone with that background. And so it becomes even more important to identify mentors and for mentors to be aware that, that, you know, we, we need to be reaching out to people from backgrounds that are different from our own. As a mentee, we often don't get training how to build those relationships. And that's a really important skill set. And so that's something that I talk about a lot with my mentees is how do you build your mentoring relationships? One of the big things I discuss is that we have multiple mentors for different aspects of our lives. So it's not just finding one mentor. There may be mentors that are fantastic at specific scientific problems that I have in the lab, others that can help with figuring out work-life balance. Equally valuable are peer mentors, people that are going through the process right now and know what the situation is right now and working with each other to figure out what works and what doesn't work. Um, So having different mentors that fill these different needs can really help us grow. And those mentors also advocate for us and they help build our network. One of the things that for me felt very uh, superficial would be going to conferences and introducing myself to somebody. And I felt like it doesn't feel genuine because I don't know this person and I want to get something from them. And what somebody pointed out to me was they want to help you. They want to build relationships. They want to meet good people and bring them into the field. This actually goes both ways. And so that I don't have to feel bad about going up and introducing myself to people. They want to meet people who are excited about their field. And so that kind of changed my perspective on just being more open to reaching out, to meeting new people, to asking for help, asking for guidance. Um, Because people really enjoy guiding those who want to follow in their footsteps. So it really benefits everybody. And if you do end up going to somebody and, and they agree to meet with you, it can be that first meeting can be very intimidating. So it can be helpful to come with an agenda. 
what do you want them to help you with? Ask them questions, ask them about their career, give them some idea, you know, this is what I'm working on right now. What do you recommend? And that can kind of help that first meeting kind of go a little bit more smoothly and lay the groundwork for a a really good mentoring relationship. And so one of the things that I work on a lot is speed mentoring. And it just lets a lot of mentees and mentors meet each other in a low stress environment and kind of get that practice at building the relationships. But there are lots of ways to do it and practice makes perfect. So I encourage everybody to work on the skill of um, building relationships with your existing mentors to find new ones. Even more important now that we are also separated with the pandemic. It's so easy to become isolated, kind of be in our own silos. And so finding ways to reach out to people to build those connections becomes even more important now. Absolutely. For people who maybe are at a stage where they're looking for a mentor, are there specific resources out there that can help connect people? There are different resources through different organizations that already have opportunities for mentoring set up. So for example, USCAP has a mentoring academy, which you very kindly introduced me to. Yeah, I'm very grateful I for. Of that, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I have been now too, and that was a phenomenal experience. They put me in touch with a great mentor in my field who is also a physician scientist, really gave me the opportunity to learn from his experiences um, and talk through some of my plans to make sure I didn't fall into any traps as I'm kind of building my own lab. And so many organizations will have, if not a mentoring academy, but mentoring opportunities, networking opportunities, those are very intertwined because networking can lead to new mentors and vice versa. So I kind of treat those almost as as very similar things. But even if it's difficult right now to do that when we don't have conferences. So you can always use your existing mentors to find new ones um, and just ask and say, hey, you know, I'm really struggling with this right now. I'd like to talk with someone about it. Do you have any recommendations? And people know other people and we want to help each other, everybody. In pathology and science, we want to help each other succeed. And so we're always happy to try to put the right people in touch with each other because it usually benefits both of them. Yeah, I think that's so important. Our field of pathology is pretty small and all of us, we kind of know each other. It feels like a family. And even though we can't get together and meet, I know that for me using things like social media, that really helps connect each other and help us make those connections. And that's something that I really enjoyed being able to do is now that I'm not quite as junior as I once was to help make those connections for more junior people because we're all in this together. We all want the field to succeed. We all want the best people to come in. So helping make those connections is a great part of why I'm on social media is just to stay connected. And it helps me have an outlet for my extrovert tendencies, even (laughs) in a time of social distancing. I really enjoy that. For me as an introvert, I really had to (laughs) build it as a skill set. I've spent decades now working on getting comfortable speaking to people, introducing myself to people at conferences. In grad school, I would purposefully go to conferences that nobody else in my lab was going to because I knew it would force me to meet other people at the conference or else I would 
not talk to anybody. <laughs> and it was actually a really good experience because I come in feeling like this is a horrible idea. And I always end up leaving the conferences feeling like this was a great experience and I've made some new friends. And so it can be extra challenging for introverts to reach out. And so I think it just like, if I can encourage everyone who's introverted to just kind of get out there, exercise those social muscles, yeah, they, yeah. they build up with strength and people are often surprised now that I'm an introverted person, but it has taken years of working on actively trying to put myself out there, talk to people, get in front of crowds. And it always ends up being a positive experience, no matter how many butterflies are in my stomach at the beginning. I think that's such an important point you make is that it's a skill like any other, right? So you didn't know how to diagnose a GBM the first time you saw it, presumably. I don't know. Maybe you did. I certainly didn't. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, just like everything else, it's a skill that comes with practice and being able to speak in public, speak to strangers and network and build those professional connections are definitely something that improve with practice. And especially if, like you say, you're somewhere where you don't know anybody, it definitely feels more uncomfortable, even for those of us who are extroverts, right? Do you think you could speak a little bit about the different experiences that people from different backgrounds might have or different challenges in creating a career in research? Yeah, one of the extra challenges people have coming from a background that uh, is perhaps less represented in medicine is finding mentors who share that background, finding people to connect with. And we see a, a drop off the higher up we get both in medicine and even more so in science where there's about even numbers of women and men in grad school um, and even in postdoc. But there is a fairly large drop when we get to the faculty level. And then even more so if you get into the higher levels of faculty and academia. And research is still ongoing to understand exactly what is happening to cause that drop off. But one of the ramifications of that is that it can be very challenging to visualize yourself succeeding in medicine if there are no examples of others having succeeded in medicine coming from your background. And I think that really makes it even more important for everybody, regardless of background, who is at the faculty level, mentoring high school students, graduate students, mentoring undergraduate students, and reaching out and, and making a point of mentoring students from all backgrounds. It's easy to reach out to somebody that shares your background. It's harder to reach out to somebody that has a different background, but I think it's even more important to do that if we want to build the pipeline if we want to have a diverse and inclusive group of people to work with both in medicine and in science. And so the onus is not on the students to survive. Yeah, It's on those of us who have made it through it to help make the process easier for everybody. Absolutely. I think that one of the joys of being in a faculty role is to be able to share and bring others up with you, whether they look like you or they don't. And I think, like you say, the onus really is on us to reach out because I think in medicine and science, as much as it's 2020, it's very hierarchical. And I think it's very intimidating for someone more junior to reach out and make that connection. The, the more we can make ourselves 
ourselves approachable, um, it, it really helps bring that younger generation along. Absolutely. Speaking of being visible and normalizing things, I remember many, many years ago, maybe not many years, a few years ago, I remember I was on Twitter, someone posted a photo from, I think it was the APC Prods meeting, and they were like, oh, isn't this so great? And it was a picture of a woman up at the microphone asking a question, some kind of session, wearing a baby. And I looked at the photo, I was like, oh my gosh, that's Giselle. So I thought that was great. You know, can you talk about that experience of going to the APC Prods meeting, having your daughter? Yeah. So my daughter at that point, I think was about six weeks old. She was little. She is tiny. And this, this is my first daughter. So, you know, everything is new. And I had no idea if this was going to be a good idea or just an <laughs> absolutely horrible idea. <laughs> I had won a travel scholarship to attend the Association of Pathology Chairs conference. And I didn't want to lose that opportunity to go and learn. So I brought my daughter with me and she sat in with me on almost everything. And so she would take naps in front of me. If she'd cry, I'd kind of step out of the room and let her you know, bounce her a little bit. She needed to nurse she'd nurse. And if I wanted to ask a question, she came up with me. <laughs> but I was really blown away by how supportive everybody was there. And people who were part of the committee running the APC, who came, you know, when I told them how grateful I was to be there, they told me outright, if anybody gives you any problem, you let us know you have every right to be here and you have every right to have your daughter here. Um, and we want you to have a positive experience. And that was incredible just to be so welcomed and to have, just to hear those words said out loud. So not just to be doing it, but to know that it was accepted. And I think that is another thing that it just kind of reminds me of the importance and the value of words and, and telling people that they are welcome and that they're appreciated. Because I remember how much those words meant to me when I heard them. Absolutely. It makes such a difference when things like being in medicine and being a researcher and being in science and still being able to be a mother are normalized and not just, not just like allowed, kind of like they'll let you fly under the radar, but actually to be supported by senior people. That's so, so powerful. And then in turn, you were able to, in visual format on Twitter, normalize the fact that you have a baby. And it's so important to normalize that because I think so much of it is, you know, we struggle behind the scenes maybe and we, we hide it. And I know I've been guilty of this myself. It's like on the surface, you're trying to look like a duck, right? Above the water, it's just kind of smooth and unruffled. But underneath in the invisible space as parents and and researchers you're just like paddling furiously and so that I is such that, a great analogy <laughs> yeah, yeah i've used it a couple of times but you know there's a fine line because in medicine we want to be professional we want to present ourselves as professional and we are but on the flip side if we don't show any of our personal 
well, you know, struggles and challenges, it does a disservice to our mentees who might be looking at us and saying, oh my gosh, well, you know, if Dr. Jang and Dr. Lopez make it so easy, like why is it so hard for me to have kids and have a career and try to juggle residency and having a kid and taking boards and things? You know, just for the record, I would like to state, it is very, very difficult. No matter where you are in your career, it's hard to have kids and it's hard to have a career in 2020. And so it's really important for us to normalize it and support each other. Absolutely. I remember at boards, I was still pumping for my daughter and they had a pumping room set aside right next to where the testing took place so that in between the testing windows, we could go and just have a comfortable couch, get it done and then go back and continue the test. And I know many other fields did not have that as an option. So it it really does make a difference. Those small things, and and I say small, but they make such a big difference to normalize it, to have that set up as the default. So I'm not requesting a special exemption. It's like, no, it's already set up. Right. I'm really glad that, that that was the experience you had, because I think that's moving in the right direction. If we look at how we can support the future generation to really improve diversity and inclusion, it's not just what you say and what's on your brochure, but it's those things, like you say, the quote unquote little things that make it possible to do the work and fulfill the requirements to become a physician while still, you know, having truly a life outside of medicine. Absolutely. Speaking of life outside pathology, um, let's talk a little bit about your interests outside of pathology. We can talk both pre-pandemic and now in the pandemic because, you know, there's been some changes probably. Yeah, so pre-pandemic, I had somewhat eclectic hobbies. I enjoy music, so I used to do Gregorian chant, which I found very relaxing and meditative. I'm going to try to get into a Zoom version, although that's a little challenging. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you ever, if you are ever interested in sharing some of your Gregorian chants with us, we do have a PathPod stories, and we would love for you to submit some of your musical talents, if you're so inclined. I might send you some via early polyphonic music (laughs) (laughs) Um, that I've done in the past. But my other big hobby was aerials and doing my favorite is static trapeze, but also lira, trampoline. Uh, I was in handstand classes for a few years. It's something that's so completely different from everything else in my life. And I don't like going to the gym. Me neither. (laughs) So... Going to my aerials felt more like going to a playground and wanting to build the strength to do the trick that I wanted to do because it was a cool trick. Can you just explain for our listeners who are not familiar with aerials what it is you're talking about? So if you've seen Cirque du Soleil, it's like (laughs) the very amateur version of Cirque du Soleil. So instead of a flying trapeze, it's a trapeze that doesn't move. But you can still do a lot of tricks. It's up in the air and you can do drops from standing. You can do different sorts of holds. A lot of those require an immense amount of upper body strength, core strength, leg strength to be able to do them. And the cooler the trick, the more strength you need to do it. This does not sound amateur, by the way. So (laughs) I think you were underselling what your hobby is here. This sounds incredibly (laughs) difficult. But the challenge is the fun and it's what made it not feel like going to the gym. It made it feel like playing. And so it was a way of tricking myself into exercising. (laughs) (laughs) I remember I had a similar experience with rock climbing. I felt that way about doing the climbing wall is it was exercise 
but it was really built as a challenge because you would get on the wall, you would try to tackle the path that was set out. And at the beginning, you couldn't do these challenging courses and you would look at them and go, oh my gosh, there's no way that I could hang upside down from that area. And then after a little bit, hey, you could. And so you could see progress. And for those of us who tend to be goal oriented, which I think is a lot of us in medicine, I think that's really the way to do it is to have goals. That is exactly it. And rock climbing is my starting point for aerials. (laughs) (laughs) I did that for a few years before I did aerials. So they're very, very similar there. Uh, And of course, now I'm not doing that, not going to any gyms right now. So I picked up different eclectic hobbies. My most recent one is amigurumi, which is essentially crocheting cute dolls. (laughs) It's a good pandemic hobby. You can do it in the safety of your own home. It's a great pandemic hobby. And I have lots of nieces and nephews now. And so I am crocheting dolls with little rattles inside them for my nieces and nephews. And I can watch my lectures while I crochet. So it's a great hobby to keep my hands busy while I'm Mm -hmm. watching lectures or in a Zoom meeting. So what do you like to crochet? What characters are you crocheting or working on? So the first one that I made is Link from the Zelda video game series. The second one that I'm working on right now is a Baby Yoda rattle. Ah, yes. Baby Yoda is very popular. He's called the child, right? In the the series. I haven't actually seen the series yet. I haven't either. I haven't either. I bought Disney Plus for Hamilton. And honestly, I haven't watched anything on it at all, aside from Hamilton and the Wicked Tuna series. I I want to watch Hamilton on it. It is my main reason for subscribing as well. We're working on a Pathology Hamilton parody at the moment, which is going to be coming out soon. So, you know, stay tuned. That's <laughs> because you know that's what one does in a pandemic. You keep up your virtual, you know, silly things you can do with with your path friends. So, thinking about your interest in mentoring, you know, do you have any advice before we close for people who are either interested in a research career or a career in pathology? Yeah. So, if you're interested in pathology reaching out to a pathologist is a great way to start. We are all, for the most part, very, very friendly people. I think so, yeah. I like to think that we are. And so we get excited about the chance to share what pathology is. And there are so many ways to do that. And now with video, we can even do video and kind of showcases through video. So there's lots of opportunities there. If you're exploring it as a field, the new pathelective.com website is a great way to kind of explore different parts of the field. I think it's great to also talk to pathologists about the day-to-day and what it really is to be a pathologist. For science, Any exposure to science at any level is a great start. And it depends on what stage you're at on what that means. For middle school students, that can mean participating in science fairs. For an undergraduate student, that can mean talking to people in labs, doing rotations of different sorts. Um, And it doesn't have to be a rotation if you're just curious talk to people, reach out to people that are in labs and ask, you know, can I sit down with you or or Zoom with you, I guess now, (laughs) (laughs) and just hear about what your experience has been like in science. And I think so many people who are, we're in the field because we love it. We love doing it. And we really enjoy sharing that joy with others. 
and finding ways to help them see what we love about it. And so I personally love talking pathology and love talking science with people at all stages of thinking about do they want to become a scientist or a pathologist or even just going to medicine, deciding MD, PhD, one, the other, neither. My goal really is I want people to be happy with their lives. And if I can give them this as something to think about that might make them happy, then that's a great start for me. So I think just reaching out to those around you and we have email now. So if you have access to email and you're somewhere where you're not near somebody between email and Zoom, you can still chat with people even if they are across the country. Use your network to find people. And if that doesn't work, then start Googling and find people. Or go go on Twitter, you know. The silver lining is that in some ways, because people are so used to using Zoom now, you can connect with people outside your institution more easily. So tiny silver lining. Yes. And Twitter's a great way to start talking to people in your field because you can send a tweet to anybody, get advice from them. And so you can ask them, hey, what you're doing seems really interesting. How do I learn more? That's a completely fair tweet to send. And the people who are on Twitter are the ones who are interested in being out there and communicating, right? And so you have a pre-selected population of people who you already know are willing to do more than the bare minimum to put themselves and their message out there. Well, Thank you so very much to Dr. Lopez for coming on the show today. It has been such a pleasure. And thank you for the work and thought you've been putting into mentoring in the field, because that is so important for us to work together to ensure that our field is diverse, inclusive, and has people who are passionate about it. And for our listeners to hear more from Dr. Lopez, you can follow her on Twitter at NeuroGiselle. Thank you very much for being here, Dr. Lopez. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Support for the Free Path Pod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.